1: Chris leads sales, marketing, and customer success. From 2019 until early 2021, Chris helmed sales and customer success teams as chief revenue officer. Prior to that, from 2016 to 2019, he served as senior director of sales and marketing operations, vice president of sales operations, and chief operating officer. Prior to ZoomInfo, Chris leveraged over 20 years of business-to-business experience, managing high-performing go-to-market teams including global sales, marketing, and operations roles at Lucient, and then later at Avea, to eventually co-founding Inside Sales Team in 2008. At Inside Sales Team, Chris also served as the head of revenue operations until 2015. He holds a BA from sunny Albany. Chris, welcome to the Second Command Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Now, There's a funny story as to how we ended up asking you to be on the podcast someone sent me a letter to a home that I'd lived at a few years ago in Arizona. And I'm like, where did you get that? And they're like, well, zoom info. I'm like, Oh shit, I got to go in to change it. So I go on to zoom info. And I'm like, I wonder who this company, like I've heard of the company. Clearly I knew of you and you're kind of everywhere. I'm like, I want to just see who these guys are. And I like click on the leadership team page and boom, your kind of name comes up. and, And I'm like, these guys actually have got their shit together. I want to I want to know more. So I just reached out the same day my assistant's editing my information, we reached out to you and somebody on your team came back to me. So thank you. Yeah, that's an
0: awesome story. Thanks for yeah. uh, updating your information too. We really appreciate
1: it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, why don't you tell us just cuz some people aren't even aware of of who Zoom Info are or what what you do. Sure. Tell us a little bit about the business, the model, uh, so we know who you are cuz we we see you in searches, but what's the business?
0: Yeah, I mean, I the way that I talk about it in, you know, we're a sales and marketing intelligence platform. Uh, and what that really means is we've built a platform that's got information about companies and the people who work at those companies, uh, what they do, how long they've been there, and then equally as important a way to get a hold of them, their phone numbers, email addresses, mobile numbers. And then we wrap that around information around technographic data, like what kind of technologies has the company deployed? We think about things in terms of intent. What are those companies researching with maybe an intent to buy or get smarter about? Uh, scoops, things that are going on in that company, like funding, you know, buying a new building, maybe a new hire that came on board. And we package all of that information up and we give it back to sellers and marketers in a way to make, it, make them af- effectively identify their best accounts, what's mm. going on in those accounts. And then again, equally as important, how to reach out and have conversation with those accounts.
1: That's interesting. So your real end user are the sales and marketing organizations of, of other companies. So you're like a B2B data service.
0: Data and, and intelligence service. It's it's interesting. We started off very much a sales function and you know marketing is more and more coming to the table, trying to grab that data and that information and pulling it together for their sellers. Um, and then we're also now working with, as organizations sophisticate, we're working back with their Data science teams, uh, their their marketing data management teams, and bringing our in information to help scale across their enterprises. So it, it's it started off as very much a sales play that was adopted early by technology sales organizations. Um, and now you know we have companies that range from you know T-Mobile to you know Houseplants.com. It's uh, it's proliferated quite quite nicely actually.
1: And is LinkedIn playing in and around your space at all? Are they bumping into you or, or are they just completely different?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of a different space. So LinkedIn, you know, LinkedIn is self-reported. So, you know, you go and you tell LinkedIn who you are and what you do, and you're as honest as you are when you with LinkedIn. We're not using that information at all. We're, we're curating it from other places. Uh, so a good example is if somebody leaves a job, either to take a hiatus or for other reasons, they might not update LinkedIn until they get to a new assignment. Um, and then, and then they might not update it at all, whereas our data looks again at other aspects of what's going on in the world and makes those updates in a more uh, expeditious fashion. And then, also LinkedIn, when you want to, when you want to activate the data in LinkedIn, the only way really to activate it and to campaign against it is either is with inmail, uh, which I think we've probably all gotten and yeah. more or less ignore in most cases.
1: Yeah. Yep.
0: Uh, so. Depending on a customer sophistication curve, we either live with LinkedIn as a complementary asset. In some cases, people go with us and not with LinkedIn. Uh, it just depends on where the company's going and how they're going to market.
1: Makes sense. Um- it's nice. You speak like a marketer. You speak perfectly in sound bites, which is really nice. You don't go on like ad nauseum, like a, a tech person will, which is really great. That that's yeah. probably a is that a strength of yours as well as a COO that you actually speak in sound bites or you speak so people can connect with you.
0: Um, maybe I hadn't actually thought of it. Give it? me time and I'll I'll ramble on before we're done. I'm sure.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sounds good. When did um, Zoom Info is public? When did you guys go public?
0: Uh, July, June or July of last year.
1: Oh, so recently. Yep. Great. That that's actually even better than I was hoping for. So going June or July last year. So you went public during COVID. Um, what tell us what was that like internally? Like, can you give us the the journey or the life cycle of you know you decided to go public as a company because you were for sure in on that decision? You started to tell the team and, and roll it out and and then what changed? Um, what got better? What got worse?
0: It's it's an interesting story. Um, we were actually planning to go public in March. And so as COVID was playing out, we're on the roadshow. We're doing the analyst days. We did an analyst day at the theater, one of the theaters in Waltham, Mass by the office. So we were, we were planning to go out in March. And then if, if you were, I know you remember as we're going up and COVID's happening and there's a little bit of uncertainty about what's going on and Things are closing. And then, you know, when when they restricted in when they restricted international flight, I think it was kind of the inflection point. And then we pressed pause on ongoing public. Um, at the time, you know, nobody really knew what the markets were gonna do. Nobody really knew really what the economy was gonna do. People were talking about it unprecedented, once in a like nobody lived through anything like this before. And then, you know, when the world didn't end and when we all took a a a breath of air and looked around and, you know, business was still happening and people still needed to sell and market and, and drive and hit their number. You know, we ended up as the, as the fall and, and winter progressed, we ended up thinking about it and um, decided that we were going to do it in the pandemic and do it as a virtual IPO. Um, So it was, it was an amazing experience. It was, it was great. And I'm glad we got to do it we didn't get to go and you know ring the bell and that kind of that that kind of thing but sure. it was it was great.
1: What what was it like internally in the organization? What kind of things happened? I imagine there's ripple effects, both good and bad, of of having gone public and even in the process of going public. Can you walk us through anything there?
0: Yeah, I mean I think there's a lot of there's a lot of focus and rigor around, you know, we're gonna be public. Everything that we do is going to need to be talked about and the numbers are going to need to be shown both Top line and bottom line, and you know we needed to continue to execute. We were executing very strongly pre-IPO, and we needed to maintain that and in some cases accelerate it. Uh, so it was a focusing event; like everybody got focused and rallied around it. And when we did go public, they had us, Nasdaq had us in this kind of virtual Zoom room like this. And when the market opened, and I had this is the first time that I had been involved in a company that had gone public the way that it works is they have a price that they think you're going to go out at. And then a lot of smart people go back and do math and still don't understand all of the the details around it. They come back and tell you, here's the price. And then they're waiting for a balancing event. So, you know, you don't go out when the market opens and you're trading, you've got to wait for this. And so we're in this virtual room, the whole company's in listening to what's going on. And then we finally go out and it was, it was super exciting. It was a, it was, even though we weren't together in person, it still was uh, was an exciting event.
1: Was it distracting at all for the employees like when they're oh great, now our options are starting to like be worth money like was there any of that that you had to control?
0: It, I don't know as if it was distracting as so much as like we had it was a good outcome for a lot of people. so I think people were excited about it. and you know from a from a private company, and especially like our our team skews fairly young. Know 25 to 35. When you talk about shares and equity and the different classes of equity, people don't necessarily have a full understanding of what that means and what it'll turn into. Mm -hmm. Um, so as this promise and these ideas that were there, you know, turned into firm hard numbers, and you have a system like that shows you what you've got and all that stuff, distracting is probably not the right word. I think it was actually exciting, people got excited about there was an there was an outcome for, for a lot of people. Um, well, yeah.
1: And the outcome has been fairly horrible. I mean, you IPO'd at 46 bucks and now you're at $70. You're up 56%. Yeah. <laughs> like you're crushing it. Yeah, it's
0: It's been good. I mean, it, it's been, you know, I think we were set to come out at 22. Like when, when they wow. put us in that room, I th- I think the number they said was 22. And we ended up coming out at 46 and you know, everybody was blown away by that. And then, you know, we've, we've put up, you know, we've put up really good quarters. The growth has been good, mm-hmm. and it's it's profitable growth. We're growing, you know, we're growing, and we're profitable, which is kind of a a, a rare combination at the level that we're doing it.
1: And yeah, now you've got forty four hundred and seventy six million dollars in revenue and twenty two hundred employees. Is that about right?
0: Um, the employee count's a little bit higher um, than that at the point at this point in time. I think we're closer to three thousand employees. Cheapers. Yeah, we've grown, we've grown a lot. We actually, the office that that Rob was in, that he was talking to you from, when we when we went home for COVID, we were in a different building in Waltham, Mass. And then during COVID, we outgrew that building. And so we've got an, a new building that that Rob's in now. Uh, that's pretty big. We we swapped buildings with Vista Print actually during COVID.
1: Okay. So yeah, lots to unpack here. Um when you started with Zoom Info, what year was that? How many years ago?
0: 10? 2016 was when okay. I think I became a, a, a direct employee. I had worked with Henry and the team kind of as a consulting, the inside sales insidesalesteam.com. Henry was a client of ours. Um, so I got to work with Henry for about three years before I came over as an employee.
1: Okay. And how many employees approximately when you joined?
0: 150 maybe.
1: So 150 employees five years ago, six years ago, and almost 3,000 today. Yes. So it's the same company, basically, <laughs> right? <laughs> Holy sh! Like, like at 150, you pretty much, you don't even know everybody's name at 150, but you could, you could really work at it and probably get close to knowing it. Now you don't even know what people do for jobs.
0: Yeah, the, when we were 150, like the building that I'm in right now, this floor that I'm on, I could walk the entire floor at that time and I could touch everybody that was customer facing Yeah. Uh, sales, customer success, even support. I could walk around and see them all and talk to them all. You know, now we're spread across different floors, different buildings, and in some cases, different countries. So it's been, it's been quite a change.
1: So what changes for you as a leader and what changes for the company of leaders as a company scales to when you, not only you can't touch everybody, but you don't even know what people's jobs are. Like you see them walking past, you don't even know what they do. What changes?
0: Um,
1: and how do you have to? How do you have to change?
0: It's a great question. I think um, the way that I talk about it and the way I think about it is when I first joined Henry, there were a lot of things that, as a senior director of marketing and in revenue operations, that I could just do myself. I could put it on my back, and I could I could do it. Whether that was putting Apex code in Salesforce, whether that was figuring out how to route the leads, activating campaigns in Marketo, or even hiring, you know, salespeople. I, I could do all of that and I could touch all of it. And then as, as you get bigger, you know, I'm pretty good, but there's a limit to my scale of an, as an individual contributor. And what you have to earn learn as a leader is you need to bring people in around you that are better than you, mm-hmm. um, the, the things that you're not good at. And, like, as this thing scales, the people that I brought in around me as we scaled to help me deliver what the company and the business needed of me. I think that the team that I built around me was the main thing and being able to rely on them. And like the most valuable person on my team is somebody that I can say, you know, Cameron, I need this, this, and this to happen. Do you have questions? Okay, go work that. If you have questions, come back and let's talk about it. But if you can go take that and then go work with four or five, 20 other people to actualize that outcome, you're super valuable to me. And that's the kind of people that as we scale that I've tried to surround myself with.
1: How do you as as a leader, um, and I think this is a question that a lot of of COOs have or even senior leaders have, how do you as a leader get the confidence or be okay with the fact that you no longer know how to do a lot of the jobs of people that you're hiring, where you still know that you are securing your job?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, it's a great question too. Like, and I, I, I've seen people as you move a person who at the very simplest level, a simple level is you take a, an account executive who's a good individual contributor mm. and you move her to a sales manager. And then if she starts to compete against that those people and say, well, I was actually a better seller than you. Like that's, that is an outcome that happens when you move somebody up in some cases you try to coach around that and help mitigate it. But I think the best leaders are the people who are secure enough to have somebody who's better than you at what you're, at what you're doing. Like I've got, I've got a a gentleman who runs my customer business. That's a better, he's better at that than I would be. Um, And that's amazing for me because the business benefits from it. And, you know, I'm able to focus on other things and add value in that and not have to worry about that as much as I would. If I had somebody that I brought in who was a little bit worse than I was, still good enough. um, I would then have to focus my attention and time on that. It's just, it's just understanding that as we move up in the organization and our scope and responsibility increases, I'm not judged on my individual contribution. I'm judged on the outcome of the team that I'm orchestrating and having a great player on the team is
1: amazing yeah i think that's actually the best answer i've heard to that question because the reality is you're right you're if you had the people who you knew what their job was and how to do it you wouldn't be getting as much done right makes sense makes a lot of sense yeah it makes a lot of sense so for you for you as a leader in the organization i mean are you still growing your skills or you what and what are you focusing on what do you try to grow where are you trying to get better
0: yeah. I mean, as my team's gotten better, I, I'm focusing on really leadership skills, um, understanding how I show up, how I'm making decisions, how I'm interacting with the team and how I'm getting the most out of the individual people on my team. Like that's where I focus a lot of my time and energy. Um, I'm also, I, I was very technical when I was younger. Um, I still try to stay abreast of things going on. Like I spend time on our platform. I spend time taking a look at what competitors are doing, people who are getting funding, people who are up and coming. So I try to stay really engaged in the market uh, and what's going on around us and on the technical side. But the main thing is really focusing on making myself a better leader.
1: How do you how do you find out, or not find out, how do you decide what to say no to so that you don't end up working 24 hours a day, seven days a week?
0: <laughs> uh, you know, it's hard. It's hard. Um, I think you know, when, when you get, and I think it's interesting. And, you know, I listened to a few of the people you've talked to, and I, I think one of the, the COO in a company, not all companies, but you've got three people who I think have the, a, a pretty good view holistically of what's going on in an organization. You've got obviously the CEO, you've got the CFO who's generally involved in all of the financial pieces, which makes him or her happen to be involved in everything. And then the COO, Um, And so like an advantage that I have is that I know generally almost everything that's going on at ZoomInfo at the same level as Henry, our our CEO and Cameron, our CFO. And so when I'm interacting with people and we're talking about what we need to do and, you know, priorities that they have, I'm able to take that. And with that broader scope of of insight, and it's not even that I'm smarter, I'm just privy to more, uh, I'm able to take those request and weigh them against a, a larger outcome. Mm. And I try to do that and and that's what I would say yes or no to is kind of that balancing act.
1: What do you focus on right now day to day? Is it um,
0: Yeah, right now I mean we've brought in I brought in a new CIO that's in our org and she's being tasked with like putting together some a corporate engineering team that is able to support a 3000 employee company. As you can imagine, as we grew that fast, some of the systems in the back office pieces are, uh, you know, we need to upgrade those. <laughs> so I'm working back with her on on that vision. You know, I think if you listen to the earnings announcement, we've we've had some success on the international front, uh, working international domestically. So we're we we were, we wanted to go internationally, actually boots on the ground, you know, earlier in the year, but COVID made that a little bit more challenging. We're finally. Super excited. We're finally going to be able to open up an office in, in London. So I've been focusing a lot of time around that, where to go, the staffing, the
1: resourcing of that piece. And then, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no go ahead. Oh, that's no, okay. Will Will anything change for the company in terms, like you mentioned, kind of the boots on the ground expansion? Will that change now because of what we've had to learn via Covid, like will you be able to do more sales outreach and and land these bigger accounts via Zoom, or do you need to be there in person?
0: I you know it's interesting. We've been working before Covid, one of the one of the reasons I think we've been so successful is we were early adopters of inside sales. So even before Covid, the majority of our sales transactions happened just like this. We were using we were early users of GoToMeeting and then we moved over to Zoom before COVID. And so we would go out opportunistically on deals. Like I would go to, to Dallas to meet with a big telecom company on a big deal. I might go to New York to meet with a, a FinServe company on a big deal. But they were opportunistic and they were timed meetings. But you know we would close seven-figure deals without meeting anybody in person before COVID. Yeah. So the move internationally is more about time zone, hiring the talent, localization. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, But I don't think we're going to have to, the UK is a little bit of a different market. I mean, it was in terms of still face-to-face interactions. I think COVID is a leveling effect where people are now more open to having a, a virtual interaction and feeling comfortable that, you know, you can solve my problem. I trust you. It's economically viable. Let's just do this. I think there's a lot more appetite for that now than there ever has been.
1: I, I'm starting to see a real globalization of hiring and recruiting of talent. I spoke to the CEO two days ago in Ohio who just lost one of his senior people to a company based out of and head office out of Luxembourg. Oh, wow. I'm like, are you fucking <laughs> kidding? Like, like, like no one in Luxembourg would ever hire anybody from Ohio. Yeah. And, and now they're basically saying, we'll hire the best people we can get for the money that we want to pay them wherever the heck they live. Right.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It is a. It's definitely happening. I haven't had anybody poached from Luxembourg yet, but.
1: (laughs) Are you, are you, is that some of the plan of the public money is to be able to now recruit talent and pay, pay more?
0: I mean, we've always been looking for talent and I I think we're, you know, we're always, I think we're, you know, we got, I think one of the awards we got was one of the best compensation places to work that uh, on comparably, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're able to now bring in talent that's more specialized. So, like, I think part of the growth of an organization like this is—I mentioned myself, where I was doing a lot of different things, um, and I did a, them. I did them well, hopefully. Um, but now I'm bringing people in that are a lot more focused on, you know, a specific task or event sure. versus these kind of broader people. And in some cases, those roles are uh, they command a premium depending on on the role. Um, but yeah, we, we are always looking for great talent. And, and whether it's here in the US or the UK, we've got offices in Tel Aviv too for, uh, for uh, the R&D team, the engineering teams out of uh, Ranana and Tel Aviv.
1: That's another big tech hub right now is Tel Aviv. Um, bringing in senior people into the organization is something that really started when you were probably around the 300 employee mark or 200 employee mark. When you're bringing in for the first time outside senior people and they come over top of, you know, three layers below them. How have you, how do you do that without upsetting everybody in the organization? How do you do like, how do you socialize it or, you know, let the whole company be okay with the fact that we've just recruited three or four senior people and you didn't get that job and you're now reporting to them.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's a great question. Um, and we've had to navigate that in a few different places over the years. And, it is about going and talking about the value that you you've added to the organization and we still value you and we still value what you're going to be able to do. It's just now as we get bigger, we can't have somebody focusing on just all of these different things. We need to get into this more of a, not specialization, but a narrower swim lane. And in that, in that case, I don't, I'm not going to judge you by the quantity of what you're doing. Like you did all this stuff. It's now needs to be judged on the quality of a a more finite number of things. Um, But I I think it just comes down to acknowledging the value that they've added, making sure that they understand that we still want them to continue to add value. It's just gonna be in a little bit of a different capacity. And the change that we're making sets it up for the organization to be more successful and them to be more successful. One of the worst things that can happen I think is you take somebody who's been really successful and the business is scaled around them. And then they're in a role where they're no longer able to execute or deliver. Mm. It doesn't feel good for them. No. It's not good for the business. Um, but yeah, it can be depending Cameron. It can be a delicate conversation.
1: I, I like your approach though. Cause the the two things that you cover off of, if you go back and look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you covered off on the safety needs, right? Look, you're secure, you're safe here. Um, and then the belongingness and love needs, like we still like you, you know, you, you're you're going to be a valuable part of the company, but this is what's changing. But you're really answering that level that's really critical for employees. And I think if we don't address that with them, if we just like, well, it's not your job and like these guys are better, that doesn't answer that security and fear thing, right? But you started with that, which is really powerful because then then they'll understand it's okay why why they didn't get the other role because they know they're really safe, right? Yes, um, yeah, I think it's really intuitive that you did that or, or thoughtful that you did that when you, when COVID hit, did you guys have to go remote? And, and well, I guess you did. Cause you couldn't go to office. So <laughs> what, do, what was that like as a leadership team? Was it like, holy shit, like, what are we going to do? Or.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because culturally, like I talk about the fact that we were all virtual, we were doing selling like this, but we were doing it from an office, so we were very much an in-office culture. Uh, sure. I, I mentioned I could walk around the floor, and talk to people and interact with people, and so the idea of going remote was definitely a foreign, like remote work from home was foreign uh, for us. You know, I'm blessed to have a, a very talented uh, HR team, and we kind of we had we knew it was coming, and we were putting together plans around you know, employee readiness, employee safety, employee productivity. And we had a plan and it was pretty well thought out. And then, you know, everybody goes home and then you worry, you go, what's going to happen. And then I think just like a lot of other companies, we ended up actually, it was, it worked out to be a benefit um, in the beginning. And people got more product, product, productive, excuse me. I think people figured out a way like people, people find a way. And I think it was an amazing experience. I, you know, I'm, I'm back in the office today and I come back in fairly often now. And, and I miss that interaction that you get when you walk down the hall to get a coffee. Um, and we've got a few people coming back. I'm, I'm anxious for the next chapter of this, where we're, we're back together, at least in some limited capacity.
1: Yeah. It's been incredible to watch companies actually go through this transition, because if you would told companies you know, two years ago that you have to do this. It'd be like, there's no way it can't be done or not even have to, but could we do this? It was like, no, it can't be done. We can't go remote. We have to be in the office. And then we just, we were forced to find an, another way, not necessarily a better way, but another way. And I think we're all going to grow from that too.
0: And we got, I think too, Cameron, I agree hundred percent. I think we got, you know, I'm old enough to remember when the first pass at virtual work that, you know, arguably failed and, and i think it was not a failure of the concept i think it was a failure of the technology so like this technology but last time we had a virtual kind of we're all going to work from home you know you had polycom and you had to maybe go to like staples or office max to use a video room and now you can just hop on any device multiple devices and have you know what feels like a fairly intimate interaction um If we didn't have that, I think it would have gone a little bit different for us.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, with Skype, it kind of worked, but it was kludgy. And like you mentioned, but now with the Zoom and the multi-person and even Google Hangouts kind of worked, but man, did they ever miss an opportunity?
0: Yeah, they did. They did miss an opportunity.
1: Oh, I hadn't thought about that, but they, yeah, they really missed that one. Um, What's been the frustrations for you in building out this company and, and as a COO, what's been hard?
0: Um. I mean, we, you know, if you look at the the results that we've had, we we are a fast-growing, profitable company. And, you know, we have a pretty high bar. And so I think not frustrating, but so much is like the bar is high. And, yeah, so running hard at that bar has been, in some cases, I I mean, the example I guess I'm thinking about is when we bought Zoom Info pre-IPO, it was before we bought, we were DiscoverOrg, Discover Oregon, Vancouver, Washington bought Zoom Info based in Waltham, Mass. And when we bought that company, we had an idea of what was going to, what value it was going to unlock. And it's one of those things that you, you know, an amazing outcome, the value that we got out of it was just amazing. It was much more than we had anticipated. But that first year of bringing the teams together, I had two sales teams selling competitive products and they were rivals. And mm. it was almost it also almost set itself up as East and West, Boston versus Vancouver. Um, so navigating that first year was, frustrating is not the right word, it was challenging. And the frustrating part was, how do you define success in that outcome? What does that look like? And, you know, we think we're doing well, we could be doing better. Um, yeah, that was, that was a tough year. It had an amazing outcome. It ended amazingly well. Um, it's ultimately that set us up for the, for the public, uh, markets that we talked about, it was a tough year.
1: Did you make cuts during that? Like, were you merging departments and cutting people or were you more just merging them and getting one plus one equals three?
0: Yeah, it was not an expense synergy acquisition. It was about one plus one equaling, equaling three. Um, you know, when we were talking before the call, you were talking a little bit about some of the things you had done professionally. One of the things we found at Zoom Info is they had this really great asset that they had undervalued it. So in the marketplace, they were selling it for less than they should have been. Mm. So we came in and we we looked at the pricing and we looked at the value that they were giving for the price and we raised the pricing. Um, and then we raised it again. And so that that was a challenging thing to get people who were used to selling at a a lower price point, which makes it more transactional, to start talking about and selling value, and you know customers were deriving value from it um, at the price point specifically. But articulating that even at lo- a larger or higher sale price, the value is still there. Like it's still going to be transformational for you. Yeah. Um, you know that was a that took a little bit of work too, but. There were a few people who couldn't make that transition. And so those were just, you know, people who couldn't make that migration from selling value to selling value from being a transactional seller. So some of those folks, you know, they found other homes, but it was, it was all about one plus one equals two other than things like that.
1: I I feel like, like you've got a massive opportunity on the PR and marketing side where, I don't feel like the business community knows the company and what you do and and why we need to talk to you. Like we know what Salesforce is and, you know, we know what QuickBooks does. And I feel like zoom info is like this hidden gem of an opportunity on that marketing side that we don't know enough about yet. Is that accurate or.
0: Yeah. I think there's a, there's a case for it. I think that there, we have, we have a base of people that are just avid fans, users and companies. And, you know, I'm, I have people that, when they go on a to a new journey, that the first thing that they'll do is they'll go in if there's if Zoom Info is not there, they'll bring Zoom Info in.
1: Okay, is that on the marketing side? Like, is the marketing side that knows, or is it the sales side that knows what Zoom Info is?
0: It's both. It's the sales and marketing side. Um, Probably more so in sales and marketing, although that that's changing. Hmm. But we talk about when we talk about our opportunity in our TAM, we talk about micro-TAMS, and we talk about them in terms of industry and employee size. And the view of that gives us an idea of where we're penetrated and where we're not. And so like tech, tech companies from, you know, medium to high employees, they know who ZoomInfo is. When you get into more like logistics, manufacturing, business services, it's typically a a larger employee count that has an idea of who ZoomInfo is. When you get into like business services, logistics, on a lower employee count, I think that's the area where we're selling there, when, but they're finding us and then they're understanding the value, whereas those larger tech companies or business services companies know about us mm. and are coming to us purposefully. Uh, but it's amazing to watch just in, in the time I've been here, how much we've penetrated across all of those things and how people view us now as, you know, you can't go to market without Zoom Info.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, and I may just be in that wrong demographic in terms of the c- clients that I typically work with are the 50 to 500 person companies. I probably just don't bump into, um, or maybe it's the more the entrepreneurial organizations. I'm just not bumping into. I just thought Zoom info was like something on the internet where your data was. It's been fascinating learning what you actually do.
0: Don't worry, I'm definitely going to go yell at my marketing team now.
1: <laughs> no, it's, I just I think it's an opportunity, like to to um to kind of scream from the rooftops. Hey, there's people. That, you know, we found this interesting at One Eight Hundred Got Junk. We were hundred million in revenue. We participated in in a couple of surveys, and we one of them was a, um, a name recognition. So we did the top of mind awareness and name recognition. So on the name recognition, it was like, have you heard of One Eight Hundred Got Junk? We were 3.4% of the US population had heard of us and we were 100 million in revenue. This was 2007. We'd already been on Oprah and we were like, we thought we were like the big swinging, you know, and and clearly we weren't because the margin of error on the survey was plus or minus 3%. We weren't even outside (laughs) the margin of error. I went back to our marketing group. I'm like, we're not even participating in the survey until we're a half a billion dollars in revenue. Like, yeah. That might be that might be where you guys are. Is you guys might be big enough that you think everyone knows, but I think there's another opportunity to take it, to them. and maybe that's why maybe you're going to get that now that you're public.
0: Yeah, I, and it is. I, I mean, I the about the marketing. One of the things that's on our roadmap is a branding exercise where we're going to go out and talk more broadly about what ZoomInfo does and you know how we help companies, and mm. that is on our agenda for in the next just couple of months.
1: It's going to be fun to watch. I want you to go back to the 21, 22 year old Chris Hayes in Albany, kind of graduating from college. What advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true today, but you wish you'd known back then?
0: Um, Gosh, that was a long time ago. I would right? say buy Apple stock.
1: That would definitely <laughs> have been what I No said. shit. No <laughs> shit, eh? Yeah, uh,
0: yeah no, no. I, I mean, I feel like, yeah. What would I give? What would I tell Chris to do? I would, I would say... You know everything's worked out really well for me. I, I'm blessed with a, a great career. I love the people that I work with. I've got a beautiful wife, beautiful kids. Like, I, I feel like I got I got lucky and I was marginally good enough to capitalize on that luck. So,
1: yeah, I think if I'd spent about a third of less of my alcohol budget for four or five years <laughs> and just put it into a couple of stocks, I'd be retired. Yeah, Chris? Chris Hayes, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, This has been super insightful. Chris Hayes, the president and COO of ZoomInfo. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Cameron. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode,
1: please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs,
0: visit COOalliance.com.